Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Welcome to Wine Talk for today, Wednesday, October 20th, 2010. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and I'm your host, Stu the Wine Guru, coming to you live from beautiful Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. You know, I'll take your calls anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me your questions at info at stewthewineguru.com. You can also go into my chat room here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or tweet me any questions you like at stewthewineguru on Twitter and add hashtag or pound sign STWG to the end of your question and I'll read it live on the, on the air on the show. I want to thank... All the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show, welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that the power of the people meets the power of the internet. Now, if you want to find out more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find out the websites, videos, articles, and all the shows I'm currently a part of. And speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for both Yahoo and The Examiner, so look for those as well. I've made a Wine 101 series of videos that can be viewed just about anywhere on the Internet, uh, but you can check out them on YouTube, uh, my website, and other places as well. I'm psyched. I'm psyched because I have the gentleman that's going to be on my show tonight. Uh, He is a Napa Valley legend, and his wine is some of the best that California has to offer. The name alone is well-known worldwide. The Vineyard, Cake Bread Cellars. The name of my guest, Bruce Cake Bread. He will be on with us shortly. Of course, the number to call in is 1-646-381-4860. If you're shy and you prefer the computer, email your questions for both Bruce and I to info at stewthewineguru.com. You can tweet your questions as well to stewthewineguru on Twitter and add hashtag a pound sign. And at the end of your question, I'll read them live here on the show. As always, I've opened up a chat room for the listeners to go into and chat so you can ask your questions of Bruce and myself, and I'll check into the chat room live periodically and check to see what questions you have for Bruce and myself and get answers. In a world where there are many wine experts and know-it-alls, there's only one Stu the Wine Guru, and he'll be right back. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I am really enjoying this social network. I love the ability to talk directly with you. I like to give you updates in real time. My guests are doing the same to promote the show, so thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes, I was just on NBC television here in South Florida and did my debut interview segment with Roxanne Vargas, who is the host of the, that segment. Uh, it was really great. We discussed this show. Uh, the Miami International Wine Fair, which I covered as a media sponsor last weekend. It was fantastic. I had a great time. And I demonstrated the proper wine assessment techniques that everyone should know to the millions who are watching. So I want to thank NBC for having me, and I hope everyone watching enjoyed it as much as I did doing it. Uh, I have many more TV appearances coming up, gang, so uh, I'll let you know as they as they come about. Also, for all of you wanting to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet me like my tweets do on Twitter, 
In January, I'll be media sponsor at the second annual Key West Food and Wine Festival, January 27th through the 30th, so come meet me there. February 23rd through the 27th, 2011, I'll be at the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. I'll be covering the whole event, interviewing winemakers, exhibitors, keynote speakers, and even attendees. So come down, meet me, and say hi. March 18th through 20th, I'll be at the Boca Bacanal Wine Food Event. And that is just the schedule so far. And since, by the way, I'm the media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I am working out a deal to give away tickets on the show and also for you to purchase them at a great discounted price, as I've done in the past. So keep listening in and following me on Twitter for more information. You're listening to Student Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. I think you already knew that already, right? Yeah. Cheers. Remember, if you have questions, I have answers. So call me at 1-646-381-4860 or email me at info at stewthewineguru.com. Get into the chat room and voice your opinion. Of course, you can get on Twitter and tweet your questions to at stewthewineguru. Remember to add hashtag pound sign or uh, STWG at the end of your question. So I'll note to ask it of Bruce or myself. We want to make sure that everyone listening knows Bruce's website and can go there for more information about his great wine. To learn more about Bruce Cake Bread and Cake Bread Wines, go to www.cakebread.com, C-A-K-E-B-R-E-A-D.com, and you can find out about him, his wines, his winery, and maybe you know buy some wines directly from him. I mean, that's the beauty of the Internet. You can sip some wine while you buy some wine. So without further wait, let's bring on my guest for the night, Napa Valley wine legend, Bruce Cake Bread. Welcome, Bruce. How are you? Oh, I am fantastic, and I'm even better now that I have you on the show. There we go. (laughs) So, let me start off with my questions for you, because I got some great email questions from around the world. I got some great uh, Twitter questions and tweeted to me from around the world, so this is going to be some some fun times here. Great, Um, great. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So so tell my listeners a little about your family, of course, and, and how they got involved in the wine business to start. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, we started out in 1973, and my father and mother started the winery back then. And how we got into the original wine business and the original 20 acres where the winery is today in between Oakville and Rutherford, right on Highway 29, is that uh, the friends of the family, they knew my grandparents uh, in Oakland, because uh, that's where my grandfather started an auto repair garage back in 1926. And uh, the Sturdivants, who owned the property, moved up here in the 40s, and they were uh, running cattle up in the hills above Condam and had a little vineyard here of varieties that we don't hear about today, like Sauvignon Vert and uh, Alicante Boucher. And it was uh, yes. mixed reds or mixed whites, and um, they also had walnut trees, and our neighbor had uh, a chicken ranch where they're raising eggs. And so uh, there's a much more diverse agricultural situation than what we see today where it's uh, all grapes up here now but uh, they started getting tired of uh, farming and so they wanted to sell there was no winery at the time and so uh, my father was up taking photographs for a book called treasury american wines and stopped in said you know if you ever want to sell the 20 acres we'd be interested in buying it buying it this was back in 1973 and so by the time he'd gotten home you know no cell phones at the time we're at that uh, day and age uh, Mrs. Sturban right. called and said, you know, uh, we'll sell you the vineyard. And that's how uh, we started out. And four barrels of uh, 1973 Chardonnay was our first vintage. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. Things don't happen like that anymore in the wine industry, you know. It's just, uh, you know, it, I think it's evolved and changed. And, um, you know, parcels of land have been kind of etched out over the course of time, you know. Um, it's not as easy to just go into Napa, of course, and just say, or Rutherford for that matter, and just say, um, you know, this, I, I want this parcel of land and I'm going to, you know, build a vineyard on it, you know? Definitely different. Very, very lucky and very, very fortunate at the time we started. And But even back in the 70s, uh, you know, we were pre or the old AXR vines. We were growing Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet here. When we were bonded, we were the sixth winery bonded after Robert Mondavi was bonded in back in 1966. And so 
there's kind of a couple uh, classes of uh, wineries that started, you know, in the the, six, the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, it was um, a really interesting time, just like now is a very interesting time. We just did a tasting uh, down in San Francisco, tasting uh, verticals from 2001 to 2010 and relating the 2010 vintage on how it relates back to this the new millennium decade and uh it's really fascinating i think that the you know looking back over the last 38 39 years i think this decade is the most exciting because um, we're through phylloxera from you know the early 90s and you know uh, vineyards having to be pulled or young vines coming up now we have new rootstocks new trellis uh, new clones uh, planted in you know varieties planted in different areas and so i think this decade is one of the most exciting decades looking at napa valley history going way back into you know the 1860s interesting that's a very interesting uh i would think perspective on mm-hmm. on wine in and napa valley because I, I you know i haven't kind of heard that before uh most of the you know most of the winemakers that i talk to having to do with let's say napa valley or california kind of harken back to the old days you know uh in saying oh yeah this was probably one of the better vintages and that was the better vintage but um talking about the last decade that's that's impressive and, and, and it's very uh, uh, promising. Well, um, with the uh, through the Napa Vintners, we just did this tasting yesterday uh, down the city, and we had uh, Opus uh, 2001 to 2010, Farniente, uh, same range, uh, Kathy Corison, and then our Dancing Bear Ranch Cabernets. Sure. And what we're trying to do is get a, a uh, line or an idea about each vintage and then we're tasting tank samples of 2010 and kind of just our experience with Michael Salachi and Dirk Hampson from Farniente, yes. Michael from Opus and then Kathy Corison from her winery and myself you know we all have been in the business for more than 30 years now to be able to uh, reflect back and say well how does this 2010 reflect into uh, what we see today and so it, it's pretty it was for us, I think it was really exciting tasting, and uh, so it was really like fun. It. Yeah. Yeah, and first of all, great people. One, I've, I've had two of the three on my uh-huh. show most recently, uh, and really, really nice people. And yeah. the other thing I was going to say was that, uh, and I, you've heard me say this on the show before, it's an amazing community in Napa Valley in that um, when I've traveled there and I've talked with the different winemakers and tried the different wines and did my tastings, uh, I always ask that question. So, what is your favorite wine? What do you like to drink? And the, always the expectation is that they're going to talk about one of their wines in their profile and, and say, "Okay, it's one of these," or one of the uh, in the flight that I'm being offered to taste. And and it's amazing how oh, did you try so and so's? Oh, it's really fantastic. It's great. And it's always a lot of times it's a lot of the other winemakers, you know, competitors, if you will. But there's really no competition. People don't you don't get that sense of competition amongst everybody. They're competitive in their winemaking. Um, but not competitive towards the people that they're competing against. If you what I enjoy, yeah, what I enjoy about uh, Napa Valley Vintners is uh, when you're making wine in Napa Valley, and uh, whether you've been here just one year or you've been here your whole lifetime, uh, everyone's really passionate about wine. And so yeah. uh, when someone does something great, uh, you're, you're really excited for them. Then also you're like, you know, how can we do, how can we make our wines better as well? And so it's a, sure. what I like to kind of call is a creative competition that it allows everyone to uh, build on each other's success. And Dirk Hampson had a great uh, comment yesterday in this tasting is, you know, 30 years ago we looked for Bordeaux for answers. Today we talk to each other for answers. And to wow. me that kind of just shows how uh, Napa Valley as a, a region has just grown. And so it's – and taking that to an example, uh, we're all in the middle of harvest right now, and so we took uh, – Julianne, our winemaker, and Brian Lee and Stephanie, our cellar master and assistant winemaker, and we're down at Opus because they have a new piece of equipment uh, for yes. crush down there. And so we're down looking at that in the middle of their crush, in the middle of our crush. Michael Salachi says, "Yeah, come on down and uh, be happy to show you what we're doing." And so it's that you know kind of uh, builds off of Dirk's uh, uh, comment, and it really puts into practice like the next day. And so it's. Uh, 
it's really, uh, we think we're in a special, special place, not only blessed with the soils and the climate and the geography, but also the people who are in Napa Valley. And to me, this is what, uh, you know, when you're uh, in the middle of harvest, you kind of pinch yourself. It's like, man, we're in one of the great wine regions of the world. So it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. I have to say, you know what it is? I think it's called Napa Valley Pride. Uh-huh. I think everybody's extremely proud, and, and they have every sense and every right to be of what they're doing, what they're accomplishing, each one in and of themselves, as well as the accumulative and the uh, cooperative of everyone uh, that makes up Napa Valley as a winemaker. And I have to say, I, I always tip my hat because um, each the vintages tend to get uh, really a lot better, better and better. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't mean to take anything away from the ones prior, just to say right. that, you know, People are getting. People are getting. Uh, it seems to be getting uh, uh, much more of a finesse about it, and that um, you know, and it, th- that the wine world definitely can look at and uh, take notice. So mm-hmm. yeah, I have to say, and the three of you guys, <laughs> I mean, of all people, you certainly you can talk about some great wines amongst the three of you uh, over the past thirty years and and, and now. Um, so you know, touching upon that a little bit. Uh, what are the regions that you see as new markets for wine to come from? I mean, you know, being that you're Napa-centric, and I just kind of made that, that mm-hmm. up, but what, what do you see looking out like the window uh, of the world and say, okay, you know what, there are some places here that I'm seeing that are emerging as being definitely uh, interesting winemaking uh, countries or regions. I think uh, uh, as you travel around, as we're selling our wines in Asia, uh, uh, I haven't been to the wine-growing regions in China, but you keep hearing about it. And so, uh, you know, again, I think it has a generation to kind of figure things out. But, yes. uh, you know, there's uh, opportunity there in terms of potential. I'm not sure what, but I'm not sure how fast they're going to go. So you have that. Uh, other Yes. Really unique areas. Uh, you know, we sell our wines in India, and uh, when I was in Bangalore a couple of years ago, our importer also has uh, a partner in a winery outside of Bangalore, um, and so we I visited there and just to see what they're doing and how they're going through it. It's you know, uh, in Bangalore or at least in this region, the grapes don't go dormant like we do we only have one crop a year and so during the monsoons the vines grow and then once the monsoons end then they come back and then they grow again for wine grapes and so it's just has a whole unique set of challenges and i was just uh impressed with their um uh ingenuity in terms of adapting their conditions so you know i went out to the vineyard and the winemaker says you know do you have any comments i said well quite frankly no because i've never seen a vineyard uh, that didn't go into dormancy, and so you know, not that. And so we went into the winery and shared comments there, and so that was uh, fun, kind of comparing notes and whatever. And so, um, yeah, so it's it's a place that you don't see. But what I enjoy about it is, as India develops their own wine industry and branches out, that they become more interested in wine and more passionate about wine within their general, you know country and then that helps spur just wine enthusiasm into that country even farther going forward interesting okay yeah that's 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 great and it's good to know because it's you're kind of giving everybody a little bit of a, a finger on the pulse if you will of what's mm-hmm. happening what's going on so um are there any varietals new varietals that you haven't produced but you're thinking about so we're working, uh, you know, we have 460 acres of vineyards scattered over 12 different ranches from Howe Mountain uh, to the new Calistoga AVA to Oakville Rutherford to Canaros. And so, uh, you know, we're always looking to say, well, you know, what's true today? Looking out, being a family business, we're looking out, you know, that's 20 and 30 years. And so we've planted some uh, mini blocks of experiments, and so we planted about a half acre of Verdeo, a kind of Spanish white okay. variety that deals with a little bit warmer area. And so we just picked our first crop on it, and tomorrow we'll be tasting it because it's just gone dry. We did it in small stainless steel drum ferment. Uh, so sure. we'll be seeing, looking at that, uh, just kind of looking towards the future of you know if climate changes. 
what will happen. We were also planting uh, in our new uh, Susco, uh property that's on the southern end, cooler, very rocky hillside. We planted some Grenache, and that will go into our um, Syrah to uh, add complexity to our Syrah. We'll also be planting oh, a little bit of uh, V&A, also specifically designed to go into the Syrah as well. And so we're looking at that to kind of take, you know, Syrah and how can we move it to another level uh, in Napa Valley in California for Syrah. And then also looking at, uh, you know, again, it's uh, farther down. We want to kind of look at vineyards over, you know, three to five years and see if we see that consistency and is it, you know, does it fit in or is it a blender or how that works. And so right. with right. the properties, we're always looking because we can do it within our own vineyards and uh, see how it evolves. So uh, we're always kind of looking, trying to look out that 10 to 15 to 20 year uh, inc- time increment um, so that we don't get caught unaware. Yeah. And then, you know, the great thing is that I guess you kind of have to in this business, it's something where you have to look at it that far down the line. And, uh, because of obviously for vintages and things that are, that are going to take time to to uh, produce or yield something that may or may not be uh, worthy, you may decide down the road, "Hey, I'm going to scrap it," or yeah. uh, you know, this is a great idea. You know, I'm mm-hmm. glad we did this because now you know we've got a blend, let's say Grenache and Syrah, and uh, you know, Morved, Morved, or you know, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, so, so I have some tweeted questions here. Uh, so great. I'm going to go to those. I always like doing that, and uh, because I like to hear what the the Twitter sphere has to say about you, and or has questions for you. So the first one is from Tim of Seven Springs Wine in Hermanus, South Africa. Oh, uh, great! He tweets Bruce. Yes, yes, yes. So he's, he tweets Bruce like you. Ha- we have a female winemaker here at Seven Springs Vineyard called Rihanna Van Vandermeer. Uh, she's only 26 years old. And what advice would you give to Rihanna? to help her achieve her goal to be one of South Africa's best winemakers. So Tim wants to know that since he's got a, a female winemaker like yourselves. So uh, really very, very fortunate uh, to talk about Julianne Lacks because uh, yeah. she's been with us coming up now 24 years. Uh, she'd been with me uh, 18 years uh, back in 2002 when uh, we moved her up to winemaker and I got moved up to president and uh, – uh one is uh, uh she's very consistent in her style she's got a great palate and knows mm-hmm. the style of our wines and so we have that continuity going over you know you know 30 plus years now from myself to Julianne and uh Stephanie Alsat is coming on board she's our assistant winemaker she's been with us for 5 years so it's the three of us who taste we just got out of tasting tasting uh 2010 Sauvignon Blancs uh just right before this and so is that continuity in uh tasting is very very important and then um what i think is also important is just traveling to other wine growing regions so that you can mm-hmm. see kind of the wine culture and how they look at their wines uh, in regards to you know what foods they use for in their own local market or their own local cities and how those wines fit and be able to get right. uh, that input and then it's uh, just being able to taste and taste and taste and taste uh, so you're exposed to wide different ranges of wine but also trying to figure out you know if you're in Napa Valley this is what people look for in a Napa Valley Cabernet and say well what mm-hmm. does best in their region, at it's their sites, right. and say, you know, we're not trying to make, you know, someone else's type of wine. This is what comes best off of that. And so it's trying to figure that out and then be able to do, to do it in a consistent basis. So Great travel advice. a lot, Excellent taste a advice. lot, and then try and apply that to say, what makes our place the best and how am I going to leverage that? And Sometimes mm-hmm. I always kind of chide winemakers because uh, they can, you know, if you leave it up to winemaker, uh, they'll do an acre of everything. And so, <laughs> you know, just like I was right. talking, like, oh, we have Verdeo, we have, you know, and so uh, also you have to sometimes really focus. And that's what we're fortunate about in Napa Valley is we're over, you know, 150 plus years, we've figured out what grows best in what different regions. Absolutely. Well, that's great advice. And I have to say, uh, Tim, and Rihanna, I know you're listening, so uh, you'll take, you'll heed that, and uh, you guys will make Come some to Napa Valley. Wines. There you go. 
Well, you know, they're in South Africa. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they've, they've made the trip, and I'm sure they'll, they'll come there, most definitely. Um, next to Bob MC of Napa Valley, speaking of Napa Valley, he tweets, how are you dealing with this year's odd growing season weather? Cold, 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 hot, rain. So that's his tweet. Great. Uh, what's exciting about this season is that, uh, uh, and I think this is where Napa Valley in in general is really best suited to these types of seasons is that uh, a lot of work needed to be done out in the vineyards to really fine tune them. And those vineyards that were shown the have the best success, you know, really took high quality farming, high tech farming out in the vineyards uh, to be able to get the wines right. So we knew it as a cool vintage and learning from previous vintages uh, back in late August and early September, we took all our vineyards that we thought were going to, you know, be ripening last and said, what do we want to do over the, you know, starting now over the next six weeks to make sure we can get these, this fruit in earlier than later. And so in some cases, it was readjusting our crops, you know, down a little bit so that uh, right. all emphasis went into a smaller load. And also, we want to make sure the leaves stayed green, you know, and didn't start yellowing up. And so uh, our irrigation practices were a little bit different than vineyards that were going to ripen in September or early October. And so we were doing that. And then also we gave them one last uh, application of uh, fish and compost tea because that's our nutrient mm-hmm. uh, program for our, our soils, and so that they're healthy, could stay a little bit healthier longer. And so it's really paying off because we'll finish um, picking here uh, this coming Friday. And so uh, it's it's kind of worked out uh, that, uh, you know, we'll finish uh, Friday, hopefully midday, the end of the day uh, on the 22nd. And if we didn't do that starting way back in end of August, September, we'd still be waiting right. on things. And so it's just that kind of let's look out, let's see who's doing what in terms of what vineyards, because vineyards that we know are going to ripen in September, if it's the second week in September or the fourth week in September, uh, not big deal. It's those ones at the end of October that we're really uh, focused in, and that's, uh, you know, it's we're just very, very fortunate this year that it's all kind of working out that way. Excellent, so, excellent, excellent. What I like about this year as well is that uh, uh, with a cooler season, uh, we have good acidity in the wine, and we're able to pick it a little bit lower sugars, starting out with Sauvignon Blanc at the end of August. And so we think the alcohol levels are going to be down uh, with the, you know, the Sauvignon Blancs and the Chardonnays. And we're just starting to taste some of the dry Chardonnays. And uh, these are tremendous wines. Uh, the Napa Valley Chardonnays, uh, we know we ha- what we have in the barrel. And I've talked to a couple other vintners, and they're very excited about the Chardonnay as well. And so, uh, you know, good fruit, but also nice structure with good acidity and a nice balanced alcohol. So we think uh, 2010 Chardonnays are going to be ex- excellent. With the 2010 Cabernets, we're seeing... We think we're we're looking towards being a little bit uh, more elegant wines. We still have good color. We're getting good color on our early ferments, uh, but we think also a nice balance of tannins, and so we think these wines are going to be very, very elegant and well-balanced, and, and again, a little bit lower alcohol, so uh, we think we're in the sweet spot there. And so while it's yeah. been a, a wild ride, uh, what's coming out at the end, we're pretty excited about, so um, uh, like it's exciting, and... We're cranking like crazy again, kind of looking uh, ahead. We started up uh, pretty hard with uh, Cabernet the middle of last week, and uh, so we'll finish everything out on Friday. So it's it's exciting time. Yeah, and and that kind of answered one of the next questions that I, I had for you. That was tweeted from Wine Portfolio from New York, which you know those guys, mm-hmm. Jody and all. Um, first of all, he says, please say hi for us, and ask him what goes good with mac and cheese. <laughs> You know, mac and cheese when you're there, uh, having that, uh, it can go with a lot of different wines when you're having mac and cheese. And so, uh, you know, it, it's interesting at home. Uh, we look at the wines, but also, you know, we're always trying wines from around the world and our, our neighbors so that we can see and understand what's going on in the wine world. And so you can have mac and cheese or, you know, tomatoes and pesto and a little bit of French bread and uh, either, either one goes well as long as you have a glass of wine with it. Right. That's what I say. 
um, and, and you kind of answered about it because also, they also asked about Chard, but yeah, you already answered about that. So you know, next one Chardonnay, is from Mark. A couple things with Chardonnay that uh, has been fun because we're just coming off the summer corn, and so uh, good sweet corn with Chardonnay. Whether you, you oh, know, take the kernels and put it in the salad, or you know, it's, oh, if it has gosh. a bit of corn, it's like this. So, Bruce, you get me hungry. I, I, may have to, I may have to put the mic down and go make some food. <laughs> well, then we're also talking about just a, uh, we had a meeting this morning and at the winery here, and uh, we have a cooking class coming up with uh, Dungeness Crab. And the other match oh, made in heaven oh, is fresh Dungeness Crab and Chardonnay. And so uh, oh, those are awesome. two my, my two favorites with Chardonnay. I have to tell you something just on Chardonnay for one second. And I've always said this about it. A good Chardonnay, all right, if you have, let's say, lobster in butter sauce, okay, and you take that first little bit of lobster and you put it into the butter sauce and you, and you eat it, right? And then mm-hmm. you take that, that uh, sip of Chardonnay, right? Okay. A great Chardonnay will cleanse your palate, and each time you eat that lobster, it'll be like the first time you put it in your mouth. Uh-huh. <laughs> a good Chardonnay yeah. will, will accomplish that. That's what I've said. I mean, people ask me, what, what, you know, what's the example of a good Chardonnay? And I said, well, okay, a great Chardonnay, not a good one, a great one. If you're eating this, this, this should happen. And if it does, you're, you're drinking, you're experiencing a great Chardonnay. And by the way, I have to say your shards are unbelievable. They really are. And, and, and by the way, people in the chat room, we're making them hungry. Every one of them <laughs> is going, you're making me hungry. <laughs> so Actually, I'm so I want to go to the next question from, tweeted from Wine Pleasures from Barcelona, Spain. Oh, great. And it says, yes, what percentage of wine sales are a result of winery visits, and is this figure expected to grow? Uh, That's a good question. Yeah, what we look at is uh, when people come visit us to the winery, we're by appointment like a lot of the wineries in in the Valley are. And our main uh, drive in having visitors come is one is have an enjoyable educational time. And so that, you know, it's fun, but also they learn a little bit about Napa Valley and about winemaking and our wines. And so that uh, whether, the, you know, they have our wines or they have someone else's wines, they have just a little bit more of uh, knowledge in a fun way uh, about the wines. And so we really try and get them out into the cellar and see what's going on. Uh, we're very blessed with, you know, our location and uh, people enjoying our wines. And so, uh, you know, we'll do anywhere from 5 to 10% of our total sales uh, through our tasting room, but it's not really focused on trying to sell them a bottle of wine when they come in. It's more to uh, show them who we are and what we do and make it fun because, uh, you know, when people are up in the valley, it's their special time and we want to really respect that, that they've spent, you know, they have 400 wineries they could go visit. If they come here, we want to really respect that they've chosen to come here and uh, we want to show them what we're doing. Absolutely, and I think that's a great uh, philosophy behind it. And I think, um, at, at least from my experience, that's kind of been the way that everyone kind of handles it within the wineries and vineyards mm-hmm. uh, in Napa Valley. Uh, which brings me to the next question, tweeted from Deborah Myberg, MW, from Hong Kong, China. Oh, we great. Hi, Deborah. China. Uh-huh. Tweeted, and she said, Bruce, you are active in Asian markets. Is Asia the answer to the wine world, or is it all hype? I know we talked about this earlier, and mm-hmm. before you do that, I want to qualify something. I just want to say this. I have been talking about China, in specific China, probably for the past couple of years as an emerging wine-producing country. And here's my thought, and tell me what you think about this before you answer this. I think if you've got some of the great winemakers uh, to go to China and work with some of the uh, enologists and uh, um, viticulturists and everyone there who is interested in producing wine. There are a lot of different appellations and a lot of different areas and regions of China. And just look at the sheer numbers of people that you have there that are interested in drinking wine. Okay, So you put those two together, and I think the learning curve would be maybe five to eight years. between If you did started now, got somebody there, some great winemakers to teach, um, I think it would be a formidable wine-producing uh, country uh, inside about eight years. And probably, you know, with, with the right winemakers being 
you know, teaching there, uh, you'd have some. You'd probably produce some great, great wines. Just my thought. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I think uh, I'm gonna. I agree with you. There's a lot of opportunity, but I think it's gonna take longer because it's. Okay. Uh, I think it'll. You know, because if you look at uh, just to get a vineyard up, and if it's Cabernet, you know, you're into it for about ten years once the vineyard gets right. older and kind of seeing what you have and how the wines age, and then making adjustments for from there and. That's all predicated that you chose the right spot to start with and not down the sure. road or on the hill or whatever. And so you have a lot of variables. And so uh, to truly make great, great wines, I, I think that'll take longer. But I think the potential is there. In terms of uh, Deborah's um, question about the wine market in uh, yeah. China, I think there's a lot of potential, but uh wineries and regions need to uh, make the commitment uh, and it's not going to happen overnight because it is a big world Mm -hmm. and while everyone we think we're the center of the earth in Napa Valley there's a lot of different (laughs) wine regions and uh, and so we need to be able to make the commitment to go over and continually uh, show up and not just make one trip and so Napa Valley Vintners will be going over the end of April and uh, uh, making a focus into uh, China. Uh, last uh, May, uh, the vintners as a group were the trade organization for all the wineries in Napa Valley. We went through yes. Tokyo and Hong Kong and uh, Seoul. And so uh, uh, as as the vintners uh, become more interested in the export market uh, and realize the importance of it, uh, that uh, I think we'll see that commitment, and we're, we're seeing it today. And so uh, as more and more vintners go over there, travel not only to sell their own wines, but as a group, I think it'll grow. And I think key, the key to success is the same as in the U.S. when we were starting out in the 70s, to be able to see on wine lists um, in the top restaurants uh, to see Napa Valley wines being listed on the wine list, being able to grow in, in volume, and then we'll become uh, more known and people will understand us better uh, about right. why our wines are this way. And so I look at uh, you know Hong Kong and China as being very, very important, as well as you know the other Asian countries. Japan has always been a big supporter of Napa Valley wines uh, for you know 25 plus years. My father was going over there with John Trefethen in the early days, and so sure. always appreciate what uh, Japan does, and uh, Korea, and then Singapore. Uh, those groups of countries have been really great supporters of Napa Valley wines, and we look to see China as uh, to be able to grow, and we're very fortunate to be able to follow the what uh, Bordeaux has done so that you know they understand wines, and then our job, our responsibility is to say this is what makes not Napa better, but just how it's different from other wine-growing regions in the world, from uh, France or Australia or South America. Okay, so I've got a. Um, I'm going to take a quick question from the chat room. Uh, it's possible. Asks, what is the trickiest part of marketing a wine? And I want to thank you. It's possible in the chat room for asking your question. So, Bruce. Hey, you know. Uh, the most important thing about marketing, maybe not the trickiest, but uh, your product has to taste good. You know, you could have right. the fanciest label. Uh, you know, you could have uh, gold nuggets in the bottle. But uh, quite <laughs> frankly, if, if it doesn't taste good, uh, the customer is going to see right through it. And so sure. uh, the quality in the bottle and that style, that consistency uh, in style and in uh, effort and quality is probably the most important thing. Everything else, you know, because our label is, you know, um, you know, not fancy. It's very, very simple. Uh, it gets to right. the point, I guess you could say, but uh, it needs to have the quality in the bottle. And so, um, you know, they might buy it once, but to, sure. uh, you know, have them come back again because they enjoyed it. It tastes good to them. Uh, this is the most important thing in marketing wine. The, the wine has to taste good. Great answer and, 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 and very truthful. Very good point. So I've got a couple more here of, uh, of tweets, and then I definitely have some email questions I want to get to because I don't want to disappoint the people who took the time to email as well and who are emailing as we speak right now. So maybe what I'll do is I'll go to a couple of email questions, and then I'll go back to some tweets. Uh, let's see. So the first, uh, first one is from Mary456 from Perth, Western Australia. 
Um, and, and, you know, mind you, these are just coming in now, so people are actually listening to the show and emailing live here, Bruce. Um, it says, uh, great show, Stu. By the way, I saw your TV segment uh, on YouTube. Good job. My question is, Bruce, uh, uh, is, let's see, do you find the cost to produce wine has run congruent with the prices charged? Thanks, Stu, and cheers to both of you. So that was uh, Mary456 from Perth, Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So in Napa Valley, uh, the, uh, just the price of land can range from uh, $100,000 to $150,000 an acre uh, in Canaros to between two dollars and $300,000 an acre in the Oakville-Rutherford region. So usually our land prices uh, are just higher than uh, pretty much the rest of the world. There's a few areas in France that are, I know are higher, but uh, we have very, very high land costs. Uh, when you look at Napa Valley, we only make up 4% of all the wines produced in California or all the acreage produced in California, but we make up 30% of the economic value of all California wines. And so in Napa Valley, you know that we're a very, very small region. We're about 10% larger than Alsace or one-eighth the size of Bordeaux. And so Napa Valley sometimes is you know, LinkedIn or synonymous with California, but really Napa Valley is a small growing region and the amount of acres of new land that can be developed in Napa Valley is very, very limited. We have about 45,000 acres uh, planted in Napa County and just looking forward over the next 25 or 30 years with the uh, regulations we have in developing vineyards, it's very, very limited. And so uh, right. you have one is high land costs. And then with our vineyard operations, we want to make sure that our vineyard uh, people who are professionals working in the vineyards uh, have a living wage. And so Napa Valley vintners and Napa Valley grape growers get together. And if uh, they're traveling through working in the vineyards, we have uh, housing where they can live in a safe a place and get three meals a day at a very very inf- affordable and so we do you know uh, farm worker housing for uh, workers who don't have a home to come to if they're oh, coming sure. up from Mexico so we really work hard to make sure you know not only Napa Valley grows great grapes makes great wine but we're only as strong as our community and so auction Napa Valley is 30 years we've raised almost uh, more than 85 million dollars over that and that all goes back into the community in terms of health care in terms of at-risk youth and low-income housing. Right. And so that we've made it so that uh, any no child will go without uh, health insurance in Napa County. Uh, That's wonderful. So, yeah, and so you have these things so, so that we attract top-quality people in our vineyards. Uh, and sure. so, but it, it does cost things. And so our costs, our land sure. costs, our farming costs, is just going to be higher, but we think the quality comes out to balance what we think the fair price for our wines. Most definitely, most definitely. So the next one is from Francois Duvigne from uh, Nice, France, and it says, I'm enjoying the show greatly and would like to know when, Stu, you will be in France so I may tip a glass of wine with you. A question for Bruce. <laughs> I love this because this is all coming right now. Hey, that's uh, exciting. W- what are your favorite varietals to blend when you're making your blended wines? Merci, Stu. That's the question. Uh, with Cabernet, we're finding uh, when we co-ferment Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon uh, together, we're seeing really great success there. Uh, we're also we have two small plots of uh, Petit Verdot, and we're also seeing because those will all go into our uh, Cabernet Sauvignon blend into our Napa Cab uh, blend, and so co-fermentation instead of fermenting them by themselves and then blending afterwards, we're seeing really great success with it. It's just not us. A lot of wineries are starting to do that uh, in the valley. Um, yes. And so we're seeing that with uh, good success. Malbec, uh, we do in a small amount, but it's a very, very low yielder for us. Uh, very, very lots of concentration of fruit, very soft tannins, and so it's a nice small blender in the 1% to 2 to 3% range. Uh, and we try not allow our Merlot to grow too big, but we like it in that 10 to 15% range, depending upon the vintage. Right. And I have to say, with, by the um, way, one of your best blends, one of your best blends um, that I have, I find it very rare that anyone blends with this grape, but I have to say uh, your Rubiat, the oh, Peter Noir, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. 
unbelievable. Uh, fantastic. And I've yet to see, and you know what? I, I've looked around. The first time I ever tried that, Bruce, I came to uh, Cake Bread probably about two years ago and um, uh, with a tour, and uh, I was blown away by that. I, I, I was looking for that. I couldn't find it for a long period of time here in Florida. Um, right, yeah. And then, and then I have to say, it's, just, it's, it's actually, I'm going to tell everybody listening, if you ever get, you get a chance, I either go to the winery, go to the vineyard, and experience it there, which is probably one of the best places to experience it, or go to your local uh, your local retail winer, wine shop and uh, and check out Rubiat. It's probably one of the best blends, especially for the fact that it's got a, a high amount of uh, Pinot Noir in it. It is just d- delicious, really. It doesn't even do it. It doesn't do justice, so I just wanted to say that, but go ahead. Yeah, that's the uh, fun one in uh, Napa Valley in California. You're always trying to look at different things. You know, this is how we, the world got white Zinfandel came from, you know, Sutter Home. And so uh, this is uh, just a fun wine to blend because it's very, uh, uh, certain wines will take, you know, two to three months to develop blends on it. Uh, With Rubiot, it's uh, really just impressions and how you feel today. And again, it kind of goes back to, you know, it's got to taste good and, it's just those combinations of, you know, Pinot Noir and Syrah, a little bit of Zen, sometimes some Merlot. And so it's it's really fun, and it's like splashing paint on a canvas because uh, yeah. that's what you get. And what's fun about it is with the winemaking team is uh, every year's uh, kind of a new exploration in uh, what we have. And so uh, it's just when you walk in and when, you, when we know we're doing that blend, uh, it's just a happy day, and it's just uh, oh, yeah, you know we're imagine. going really fast, so, and it's uh, just we're just throwing impressions out there. Okay, so I got a couple more questions. I want to make sure I get to some of these. Next one is from Wine of the Times from Ankara, Turkey, and it says, "Well, I listened to yeah, really, I listened to this show for the first time this morning. I guess it's morning time right now in, in Ankara, uh, and I will be listening every week now. This is a very entertaining show, Mr. Cakebread. How do you choose the countries you will distribute your wines in?" Good question. Very good question. And what we're trying to do is work with uh, importers that uh, have that same shared values of, uh, you know, quality and then quality distribution. Uh, uh, We work with a kind of a lot of different family uh, kind of run importers. And uh, we can kind of tell the match because... Uh, If they're focused in restaurants, uh, you know, high-quality restaurants and fine wine retail shops, that's where we're mostly focused in. Uh, I'll go every year to Dubai and to India uh, is our two main uh, markets there. Uh, Trying to uh, visit Cairo uh, because I have a good friend who has one of the Fairmont hotels in Cairo and see if we can do a dinner there, even though we don't have an importer. That's nice. I think it's kind of fun. And then... um, we do Asia, and then we also have the UK and Ireland and uh, Russia. You're all over there. And, and that's our outside of North America. My brother Dennis uh, is responsible for sales and marketing of the brand, and his he does all in North America. And so he's, he's oh, got really? those are our biggest markets there, and uh, very very important so, to us as well. So the next one, the next one, having to do, talking about world market, is from Oscar Wines from Prague, Czech Republic, and it says, Stu, you are the guru of all gurus of wine. I love this show. (laughs) I told all my friends here in Prague to listen to you and your guests. My question for Bruce is, how do you find your fair, how do you find you fair on the world market with so many other California wine producers penetrating the world market regularly? Mm -hmm. Cheers to both. Great. It's a great question. Uh, What we... Our main responsibility when we go out into a market is, uh, one is to explain Napa Valley, and that you do it in the context of California, and then what makes Napa Valley special, and then where we fit within Napa Valley. And so right. uh, that's that's how we look at it. And the, I start out when I'm doing a sales presentation to the sales team, because, you know, they're very interested. They're all young, young people, very interested in wines. Right. And I start out with a Google Earth, and it's you know from their city, we Google Earth to San Francisco, and then uh, Google Earth up to Napa, and then be able to see that. And so that puts it kind of like where are we in you know in just in the U.S. and where are we in California? 
and then explain what makes Napa special from you know the soils to the climate to the geography uh, to our history uh, and then to the community and then say this is how our family fits in to the fabric of Napa Valley and then gotcha. um, it's just Again, showing up every year, you know, if you don't show up, you know, that's 80% of the game. But uh, just continually explain our wines and um, uh, be able to, to show that. We're not trying to sell to everybody because uh, we know there's wines, you know, not everyone wants to drink Napa Valley wines every night. And so we re- recognize right. that. But uh, once they get a deeper appreciation for what Napa Valley can do, we think we can compete quite well with uh, everyone else in, in the valley here. And it's a testament to the fact that you're, you know, you're available worldwide pretty much. I mean, not many places you're not. So <laughs> that, that, that should say a lot. Um, I have some more tweeted questions that have come in. Let's see. From Food Network Canada. Hey, great. Toronto, Canada. They said, uh, what, what boutique winery, uh, what does boutique winery mean to you and where you think Cakebird stands in relation to that term? Great question. Uh, What's interesting about out of the 400 wineries in Napa Valley Vintners, 74% of them make 10,000 cases or less. And so right. with all these you know, different wineries, you know, they think, oh, look at them all. A lot of them are very, very small wineries. And then 95% of them are you know, single proprietary or family-owned wineries. And so uh, we have that group up there. We started you know, very, very small, you know, just like a lot of wineries are starting up today. And um, uh, what we like to say is we have that small winery mentality of every lot keeps separate and, uh, you know, be able to do that. And, uh, you know, every gallon is special. Every grape is special. It's not a commodity to us. It's special because what we're looking at is how our wines age. And so when you're classifying what makes a great wine, uh, to me, one of the criteria should be it has that potential to age. And so this is where, with our Sauvignon Blancs, we can show five to eight-year-old Sauvignon Blancs. We can drink the 02, 03, 04, 05. And it's drinking, you know, very, very interesting and not not tired yet. Uh, we can go eight to ten years into our Chardonnay and the same with our Cabernets. And so this is when we're doing things, whether it's night harvest picking or whole cluster picking or whole cluster pressing for our white wines, uh, we think this is what helps you know, one is to make the style of the wine the way it is when it's first released, but then also has that potential to age quite gracefully as well for a long time. And so this has been our main focus for our winery. And you're not going to do that if you kind of lose that small winery or that boutique winery uh, passion for making wine. That's a great attitude. I, again, I have to say phenomenal philosophy. I really I really think that is great. Um, I have another one tweeted from Weekend in Paris from Texas. This is a really good question, Bruce. Bruce, what changes are people making in wine buying habits based upon economic times? Fewer bottles or downgrading vintage? So you see uh, a lot of different things going on in the marketplace. Uh, you see, you know, um, people, you know, saying, "Well, I'm going to drop down," and you know, they're still drinking the same volume, but then maybe they're not paying high prices for that for wines that they might have in the past, and but they're still drinking wine. So one is. That, I think, is very, very important. Uh, But also you see sometimes uh, the habits change. Instead of ordering a bottle of wine, they order a glass of wine in a restaurant when they want to go out to a restaurant. And I think the restaurants have also quickly adapted to offer a better selection of uh, wines, a higher class of wines than maybe they had in the past. And so I think this is where the restaurants have adapted to customers' Uh, changing needs then but we're also seeing uh, that you know people still want to drink nice wines but you know maybe they don't want to pay the high markups in some of the restaurants and so they'll buy it off a fine wine shop and then uh, be able to enjoy it at home and so uh, you still see that going on as well and people are entertaining what's exciting is you know when they're entertaining at home um they're learning how to cook, 
And so uh, right. just cooking skills are uh, uh, kind of on a on a rise, you know. And so, you know, it's how much fun it is to kind of spend a, a Sunday kind of going shopping and uh, cooking for friends and have them come over Sunday night or, you know, Saturday night and uh, enjoying a nice bottle of wine. And so it's how people entertain is is changed a little bit, but also restaurants have adapted very, very quickly uh, to be able to offer, again, you know, high-quality wines, uh, maybe by the glass instead of, uh, you know, what they did in, in the past. And then, right. you know, wine consumers also starting to entertain at home a little bit more. So you see that going on. And so I think that's good. As we kind of move on, I think some people are going to sit there and go, you know what, I enjoy, you know, these lower price wines and I don't mind the quality and, you know, the way that, and that's fine. But I also think you'll see some people sit there and, you know what, I really miss uh you know that attention to detail and these types of wines, and so they'll migrate up. And so you, it won't be a one or the other. I think you'll see uh, kind of a migration, and consumers will change, you know, as their conditions change as well. And so um, I think that's what, to me that's how, how I see it kind of going forward. And, you know, I think you know high end wine category isn't going to go away, but I think uh, how people. Uh, choose to enjoy the wines might change a little bit, uh, you know, and kind of going forward, everyone will adapt. And uh, as we've kind of gone in, you know, going in the end in 2008, uh, we told our whole team here at the winery is, you know, we've been making these quality wines for the last 38 years. We're not changing, you know, and this is who we are. If we start changing our customer, we're letting our customers down. And so everything we do, uh, our quality has to actually be better and continue to improve. Uh, we want to give sure. great customer service. And then uh, the fun thing we've done is we've had uh, kind of cross-trained our employees so that they can move around from the seller to the visitor center, you know, to manning the phones. And so I think our employees have mm. also enjoyed those challenges and learned new skills. And so for us, sure. it's been a, a, a good thing. You know, not a good thing, I, but, I you know, say, we've adapted to it. I've yeah. noticed it. I was just I've noticed that when I've been there. Um, that's something about that. I, I mean, everybody seems to be uh, multi-talented and uh, multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that brings me to uh, we're, we're, we've got a couple minutes left on the show. So it brings me to my tradition question. Um, as I've mentioned on my show, I, I each one of my questions are are unique to my winemakers and my guests. Um, so no show is exactly like except for this one question that I started a tradition about. Um, so you can have any wine you want, Bruce. I'm making a statement there. Uh, uh-huh. Tell me, <laughs> tell me a wine you've either had that you thought knocked your socks off, or a wine you try or you're looking to try or you're seeking out that you haven't tried yet. I'm I'm going to pick four wines, and I mean one of the most memorable tastings I've ever done is uh, Kathy Corson. Uh, uh, we tasted. Uh, I forget the vintages, but there was a five-year-old wine and brand-new wines, and all four wines are decanted. But the one was a Magnum, one was 750 of the older wine, Magnum 750 of the younger wines. They're all decanted into 750s about two hours before. Then we went through and tasted them blind. And to me, that was the most that was just the most interesting wine wine tasting. Just to be able to taste blind how wines bottle aged, you know, young vintage, older vintage, sure. and how they uh, matured. And so that was just a what wines uh, were they? It, it was a Corson Cabernet, and okay. so it was a, her current release. And then it was uh, five plus years older. And so uh, just to be able to see those, t- you know, how the vintages changed and how the bottle how they aged in different size bottles. And so to me, that was always memorable tasting. Is there a wine that you're looking for that you want to seek out that you you haven't tried that you would love to have? Uh, you, you know, the, my wife and I, we enjoy bottle wine every night. And so we're always trying wines from around the world and, you know, around Napa Valley. And so uh, it's kind of like the next client and the next, the next night, what are we going to have? And so it's it's always exciting trying different things. So as long as I have a glass of wine the next night, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> well, I want to thank you. I have a, a a minute or so left. I want to thank Bruce Cakebread for coming on my show. Uh, you can go to www.cakebread.com and find out more about him, his wines. Go to the winery, go to the vineyard, buy his wines directly on uh, the website. Thank you so much, Bruce, for coming on my show. I really really appreciate it. Um, I'm, I look forward to having you back again in the future. Great. And, um, 
Thank, thank you very much, too. It's, it's you been a phenomenal question. Great joy, and uh, also it's a nice break from harvest because uh, we're going full bore, and uh, so it's just fun just to talk about wine, you know, about people who are passionate about wine, and so I really appreciate talking with you and uh, talking with everyone around the world. It's very, very exciting. So Thank I welcome you. everyone to come to Napa Valley and uh, see what we're Absolutely. doing here. Thanks so much, Great. Bruce. Thank you, Sue. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. So that's the show for tonight. I want to thank everybody who listened in, who emailed in and tweeted their questions. I want to especially thank Bruce Cakebread for coming on and telling us about his great wines. As always, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to info at stewthewineguru.com, or if you're on Twitter, you can tweet me anytime your questions. I'll read them on the air. Uh, to my guests. You can go to my website as well at www.stewthewineguru.com. Click on the link for all my wine articles, videos, and to listen to archived wine talk shows, just click on the picture of the guest. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stew the Wine Guru. Drink up, good night, and good wine, everybody. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru.